Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host, Melissa Collings, after the reading, when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, used every day by best-selling novelists, screenwriters, nonfiction writers, and more. Think of Scrivener as the Swiss Army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the distraction-free writing view, or you can break out all the tools to plan, organize, research, and create your work. When you're done, you can easily export to multiple document, manuscript, and ebook formats. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Today's story is Nothing, Egg Whites, Nothing Written by Piper Gorley And narrated by Melissa Collings Settle in and enjoy Nothing, Egg Whites, Nothing By Piper Gorley Nellie was thinking of how to get out of dinner with her brother when the telephone pole turned the corner and smashed into the front of her truck. The pole came out of nowhere, or Nellie came out of nowhere, out of her brain and out of herself. She was so concerned with providing an ideal excuse for dinner. What about a flu? Andrew wouldn't want to meet if she had the flu, although he might try to bring her soup, which, if it had cream, she would have to vomit, that she forgot she was driving. The wheel became liquid under her thumbs. A queer whistling rang in her ears. She tilted her head, hoping to tip the noise out into the passenger seat. She heard the metal impacting against wood before she felt the lurch. Her airbag went off. The inflated sack smashed into her wrist. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Her arm felt like a wasp stung it. Her knees, ever aching, were fresh with pain. Warmth migrated from her joints to her calves. She sat there thinking, this is a good excuse to get out of dinner. But now Andrew might want to come over and bring me dinner or something. I won't have him bringing his food into my house. I won't. A woman appeared outside of her passenger window, a concerned face attached to a thick neck. She knocked on the glass, motioning for Nellie to roll down her window. Nellie held her finger up, the one on her good arm, trying to think. Andrew? She cognitively rehearsed. This car accident did a number on me. I know you're in town from Austin. Yes, of course, I just need rest. A week or two. Just give me a week or two. Before she knew it, an EMT had smashed her window and unlocked her door from the inside. The sound of shattering glass brought her back to her skin. In the ambulance, they wrapped her swollen arm in a tangle of yellow tape and gave her a numbing shot. The EMT examined her eyes, then her ears, shining a pinlight through to her brain. She stared into Nellie's ear for a long moment, then had a second writer take a look. My goodness, 
she said. Your ear canals are wide. Wide? It's like there's... What? Nellie asked. No fat in them at all, the EMT replied. Nellie smiled. She didn't mean to, but the response proved natural and full. They prodded her further. Are you lightheaded? Nauseous? Any trouble thinking clearly? Nellie nodded along to each question. Who cared? Her ears. Fatless. That would explain the whistling. But fatless. How wonderful. You might have a concussion. A concussion? A scoff rose through her chest, struck a fresh pain in her ribs. Lightheadedness and nausea defined Nellie's day-to-day. If her thoughts were clear, the pole wouldn't have run into her car. At the hospital, they did an x-ray on her arm. Fractured, a doctor explained. They slapped on a Listerine-colored cast. She signed a few forms, gave a bit of blood. By the time of her discharge, her car had been impounded. She called Andrew to pick her up. This should have filled her with anxiety. Instead, she sat on the emergency room's curb, grinning like a fool. My ears are fatless, she thought. She laughed and laughed. By the time Andrew pulled in, she wondered how many calories she had burned, chuckling to herself on the ground. At least 30. The next morning, Nellie called into work, her third day of employment at Staples. She told her new boss about her fractured arm. When that didn't prove satisfactory, she explained that she had no car to get to the store. Yes, she had no way of getting to the store to tell the suburbanites from West Montrose why they needed the newest Surface Pro or Sharpie gel pens. Once they hung up, she fed her fish. Nellie found her fish remarkable. Her landlord didn't allow any animals with fur, but she didn't mind. The creature lived in a bowl on her kitchen counter. It never tired of the flakes, never grew bored of its routine. Nellie's friend's goldfish developed a bloated swim bladder and stopped eating. That had been a stunning revelation. A fish that didn't eat? She looked it up and discovered all sorts of things about goldfish that might prevent them from eating. Disease, infection, depression over their tank size. Ever since, Nellie worried she would wake up and find her fish swollen like a balloon, picking at the red flakes on the water like they were allergic to them. She wouldn't even name it too afraid her affliction would become its affliction. That had yet to happen. After feeding it, she went straight to the scale. She weighed her arm first, the one with the cast. She needed to know how much the cast weighed to subtract it from her total weight. Nellie couldn't get a proper measurement without factoring in the dead weight of her arm, so googled the average weight of a cast, three and a half pounds, and wrote it under a blank total, subtracting this value from the morning's non-existent number. She stripped and stepped on the scale. She recorded the number, subtracted. She frowned. How many calories made up the numbing agent they gave her? She returned to her computer and Googled for calories and numbing medication. Novocaine, the closest agent she could find, 181. 81 more calories than she allowed herself for breakfast. All the calories and Novocaine were from carbs. Oh, wow. Breakfast was off the table. She closed her computer and started into jumping jacks. She flailed her good arm over her head, trying to shake away the Novocaine calories that may have settled in her sleep. She thought of what her therapist from rehab would say. Your body burns calories in your sleep. Resting isn't laziness. 
but they paid her to say that. Three months had passed since Nellie left eating disorder rehab. Andrew didn't know. Up until two months before, he worked abroad in Europe. He didn't call back to the States outside of holidays, making it easier for their sense-estranged mother to make an excuse for Nellie's absence that wasn't quite so embarrassing. A retreat! Yes, Nellie had stolen away on a wilderness retreat, not ended up stuck in a hospital in Arizona where patients would have to drink the ranch if they forgot to pour it on their salads. When her mother caught her purging during the prior Thanksgiving, Nellie had felt a temporary sense of relief, a bad spell broken. She'd hit the edge of exhaustion. That had led her to agree to Arizona. However, if starvation felt like bleeding out, then recovery was like sticking her fingers into every wound. Within the first week, she resolved to get out and never return. In rehab, she felt like Alice in the dollhouse, pre-potion, the biggest girl in every room. The sight of those wiry women shook her badly. The concept of becoming a frequent flyer wasn't on her radar. She had no intention of reading and rereading the vapid analogies laced throughout Life Without Ed, nor getting supplemented each time she walked down a hallway too quickly. Three months into treatment, her insurance kicked her out like an answered prayer. The rehab held a graduation ceremony and everything. The therapists and psychiatrists gave terse speeches. Everyone applauded, their dry fingernails tapping together like pills. Nellie glanced around the room of clapping patients, all in different states of decay. Infantile, tubed, yellow, wheelchaired, all waiting for their number to be called for release like a batch of the Price is Right contestants. This horrible thought occurred to her. They were all dying. Not like strangers on a bus or people in the store. Not gradually, but all at once. All lying in wait for their opportunity to lapse back into the cool palms of their illness. None of them stood a chance. Nellie included. She continued to do jumping jacks on the hardwood floor until the pain in her knees became unbearable. She thought to call about her car, but decided against it. A confrontation with the towing company would be too extravagant a purchase from her limited stores of energy. She needed to save that for her afternoon exercise. That and the whistling had begun again. She located a couple cotton rounds and shoved them into her ears, then laid on the couch watching punky Brewster reruns into the late morning. Around 11, Andrew called. How are you feeling? Andrew asked. Oh, fine. I'm on the up and up. You're still good for dinner tonight? Dinner? Nellie yanked the cotton out. You sure you're okay? We talked about it yesterday on the drive. The drive? The drive where Nellie smashed into the pole? No, a different drive. The one after. Nellie didn't remember much of the ride home. She remembered how her stomach felt under Andrew's seatbelt, the blooming ache of hunger in her gut. She remembered nodding along and mm-hmm-ing at Andrew as he asked her question after question, his voice foggy and underwater. She didn't remember agreeing to dinner. She also didn't remember refusing dinner. I'm not really in the mood, Andy. Anything you want, my treat. My treat. Nellie wanted to treat herself with a bullet between both eyes. She considered telling him exactly where she wanted to go to eat. Yes, Andy, take me to H-E-B, where I can get Miralax and Diurex in the same aisle. But Andrew didn't know what made Nellie so gaunt. And if he did, his ability to feign ignorance was astounding. 
I'm not much for company. Rain check? No, no one should be alone on their birthday. Nellie froze. It's not my birthday. Yes, it is. Unless mom has been lying to the both of us the last 30 years. Nellie rose to her feet and made her way to her kitchen. She kept the calendar on the counter. As of late, time melted together in her mind. Every day moved like a carousel of mirrored afternoons, the hours melting together like a bad trip. On her calendar, she marked the days off with a red pen as proof of their advancement. She stared at the day's numbers. They seemed to grow larger on the page. 9-7-2020. Sure enough, Nellie, born ten years after Video Killed the Radio Star debuted, the anthem of the technology doomsday. She pressed her thumb into the twenties like ants that needed killing, then circled the day twice. Maybe you did get a concussion, Andrew said, a tease in his voice. Nellie didn't smile. Thirty. Thirty? She had lived until thirty? Name a place, Andrew said. Anything from Katie to Galveston. What? What are you talking about? Restaurants. Just make sure they do takeout. Nellie's heart hiccuped. Takeout. She'd rather be taken out. That bullet between both eyes. A meal in a restaurant felt daunting, yet bringing Andrew into her apartment ran far worse a hazard. Every room came with its own risks and gambles. Andrew wouldn't make it through the night without opening Nellie's cupboard, or her closet, or her bathroom. Fat-free vegetable soup cans, children's clothes, diet pills. Once that conversation cropped up, escape would prove impossible. She couldn't chance a repeat of Thanksgiving. No, no, let's go out. Out? No, you've got a broken arm. Fractured? Same thing. I'm supposed to move around, she said. She paused, trying to wrap the lie around itself neatly. Stretch my limbs and such. That's what they told me, the EMTs. Otherwise, I'll heal all stiff and horrible, and all the pain will catch up with me in a month. Mm-hmm. He sounded unconvinced. Are you sure that's a good idea? Positive. Because it's really no bother to... I've decided. It's my birthday, isn't it? Nellie was already pulling up restaurant Yelp photos in the area when Andrew added, Fine. You've got to hold off on any diets tonight, though. Diet. She hated the word diet. Diet was a kid's word. Diet suggested a lack of dedication. Diet was uncommitted, something detachable, even malleable. What Nellie was on wasn't a diet. It wasn't even a lifestyle. It was within her. A series of pulses, a code of behavior, as inevitable as the flood of Moses, as the death of Disco. Why? she asked. It's your birthday, Andrew replied, as if that explained everything. No, why do you think I'm on a diet? Andrew didn't answer fast enough. Nellie didn't want to know. She told him that she'd think about where to eat and hung up. A migraine stirred, birthing a twin ache in her stomach. Her body flushed with pain, yet she hardly noticed the places that it pierced through. Panic overwhelmed her. Nellie had avoided Andrew like the plague, and now she couldn't. Despite any of Andrew's illusions, Nellie wasn't on a crash diet that she could magically uncrash from. She didn't have the ambitions of a Malibu Barbie. She only wanted the world to feel bearable, 
Restriction turned the sharp edges into curves, erased the miserable days. 30. What a miserable day. Nellie felt like crying, but not for long. Numbness took over. Edges into curves. She went to the gym to blow off some steam. She could bring her phone and stare at the menus on the Nordic track. Those with pictures would help her delude her body into thinking that she ate breakfast. She took a handful of ibuprofen, two calories, to trick her knees into a passive ache, then grabbed her keys and bounced downstairs to the garage. She froze. Her car had gone missing. Where had she parked? A moment passed before she remembered that the vehicle had gone poof against the pole. For an instant, she wished she had gone poof against the pole, too. A Mexican restaurant. That was where Nellie chose to eat, this little diner around the corner from her apartment, one of the safety restaurants that she frequented before slipping into relapse. She liked the place because they didn't put their calories on the menu, although my fitness pal had seared them into her brain. They also had a single-stall women's restroom, which allotted privacy for her inevitable end-of-meal ritual. She invited Andrew over to pick her up, then got caught in one of the melted hours and forgot his arrival plans altogether. When the doorbell chimed, she was still in her morning gym clothes. She blamed her lateness on fatigue, a poor night's rest. He invited himself inside to wait for her to get dressed. She reluctantly let him enter then steered him into the hall to ensure he wouldn't try to pry open her fridge or cupboards. He peered into her bedroom, pointed to the trash bag taped over her floor-length mirror. What's that about? I'm trying something new, Nellie said. Andrew didn't ask. He waited outside of her bedroom. Behind the door, Nellie wriggled her cast through the open sleeve of a black dress. It fit her not unlike the trash bag over her mirror baggy and alien on her body. She tugged the hem down, frowning. She dug the heel of her palm into her waist. She wished she had both hands free to measure the circumference of her leg. A fresh panic tore through her. To stabilize, she recalled what she had eaten for breakfast, lunch, and afternoon snack. Nothing. Egg whites. Nothing. That mantra would need to pull her through the night. She fished a large cardigan out of her closet, something baggy enough to hide her ever-thinning upper arms and protruding collarbones. Something to ensure Andrew wouldn't ask too many questions. Nellie opened the door. As far as Nellie could tell from the delight on his face, Andrew didn't notice anything off about her. He didn't notice the way that her knees jutted out like notches on a bedpost, nor how her sweater hung off her shoulders like a too-loose bra. He saw a kid sister growing into a pretty, thin woman, rather than a pretty, thin woman. They walked to the restaurant, Andrew staring in awe at the plump houses occupying Westheimer, plucked straight from the pages of Home and Garden magazine. Nellie stared not at the houses, but at the pavement, taking a mental account of the walk's calories. She never gave much attention to the homes before, not bothering to introduce herself to the wealthier neighbors, those suspended in the swell of suburban life. They were too stable. They would ask about her caste, about her thinness. Or they would avoid the topic altogether, quietly identifying her as a lost cause, which struck her as worse. By the time they reached the diner, Nellie's entire body burned, a sight of distress. 
Her muscles were stretched as taut as wires. Her bones felt like heated rods beneath her skin. The waiter at the counter looked new. He took one look at Nellie and asked if she needed a kid's menu. I'm 28, she replied. But now, she wasn't so sure. As far as her memory ran, she was no older than the day. The waiter looked embarrassed, but he didn't apologize, as if he were humiliated on Nellie's behalf. Once seated, Nellie lowered her eyes to the menu, pretending to be on a thoughtful search for a dish of her destination. She'd already Googled each item and knew what she would order. Andrew stared at her quizzically. Thirty, Andrew said. Nellie glanced up. What? You're thirty, not twenty-eight. I know. Now that she looked at the physical menu and its technicolor glory, it got harder to remember what she had settled on. Their online menu didn't have colored photographs. The food looked incredible. A plate of enchiladas burned yellow and red holes through the menu paper. A scoop of rice set as circular as the unisphere in the far right corner. In one photo, a mountain of fleshy beans rose to the lip of the plate. Oh, wow. The pictures were practically pornographic. She hardly heard a word that came out of Andrew's mouth. Are you doing okay? Mm, Nellie nodded. What are you ordering? Enchiladas, Andrew said. He hadn't opened the menu. Nellie had not merely opened the menu. She was swimming in the pages, lost in the visual ecstasy. Her body begged her to order every dish. Finally, she asked Andrew to order for her. Taco salad minus the cheese and meat. Andrew shook his head but didn't comment. The server came and went with his notepad. He delivered a dish to a diner behind them. A miasma of meat and grease hovered over their table. Nellie leaned forward in her chair, grateful for the music over the loudspeaker. The instruments drowned out the humiliating groan of her stomach, as well as the draft running through her skull. She must have looked different at that angle, bent over the table, digging her good elbow into the wood, tilting her thin face upward. Andrew's expression was no longer filled with admiration. Your hand is so little, he said. She smiled. Why did she smile? She might give the whole thing away. Andrew frowned. Are you okay? My arm is fractured, so mostly. Are you taking your medication? Lexapro. She had started that before Andrew headed overseas. She nodded. Of course she wasn't. Antidepressants would make her gain weight. They didn't work on an empty stomach, so there was no use. Nellie changed the subject. She asked Andrew about his new accounting firm job, even though it was a yawn, because it meant they didn't have to talk about why she had shrunk as thin as her ear canals. It went on like that. Andrew talking, trying his hand at a pause, and Nellie inserting a fresh question before he could berate her until their meals arrived. Their meals. The chilled plate felt like a prop in front of Nellie. So did her fork and her spoon. She couldn't remember the last time she ate out. A year or so? A few months? A dozen melted days ago? She stared at the dish. She waited for someone to decide that it wasn't hers, that they made a mistake. Nellie? Andrew said. You look pale. Are you sure you're okay? Just give me a week or two, she thought. She nodded. Are you sure? Andrew sounded like a quiz show host. Nellie waited for confetti to rain down from the ceiling. 
She waited for artificial laughter to come tearing out of the steel kitchen doors, signaling that their entire outing was little more than amusement for a faceless crowd. But there they were, Nellie and Andrew, deep in reality, in a colorful restaurant full of pale noise. Nellie picked up her fork. As soon as she put her meal in motion, Andrew relaxed in his chair. Nellie ate a small red pepper first. Then she held off for a couple of minutes. She chit-chatted with Andrew as her stomach grew nauseous and aggressive, a curling seed within her gut. Then came bite two. With each swallow, everything became sharper. Her heart pounded as it tried to keep up with her digestive system. Her hands blossomed with nerves. Sweat climbed up her neck. She felt like she had dived into a slipstream of heat, head first. Every movement of her utensils felt too conspicuous. She could feel the whole restaurant watching her fill her mouth with beans, rice, steak tomatoes, wide-eared lettuce. The entire block watched her. All of Houston watched her. She ate quickly, trying to remember that none of this would stay inside of her. She was a tourist stop for a series of side dishes that would soon find their way back out into the world. She thought, nothing, egg whites, nothing. But none of her thoughts proved enough to deter the anxiety, as pressing as a brand. The faster she ate, the hotter she felt. When there was no more chewing left to do, she set her fork down. The plate, empty. Nellie's eyes went red as she visualized the calories slipping into her bloodstream, furious in their attempt to metabolize. And that whistling, that horrible whistling. She told Andrew she needed to pee. Nellie slipped out of her seat before he could nod his head. The bathroom was occupied. Nellie hammered a closed fist on the door handle. Her fingers tingled, cramped. A woman opened the door, wearing an alarmed expression. Emergency, Nellie said. The woman nodded and ducked out of her way. Nellie rushed inside and slammed the door. She knocked over a decorative fern inside the doorway. The plant slipped out onto the cold floor. She didn't care. Couldn't care. Soil stuck to her heels as she bent over the porcelain bowl. Her fingers fumbled over the length of her tongue. In moments, everything came up on reflex, hot and acidic. She didn't stop until she saw the red pepper emerge in the water definitive proof that she had unwound every last bite in her system. She flushed, cleared her throat. She glared into the mirror, mouthing her mantra, nothing, egg whites, nothing. She washed her hands, did a few jumping jacks in her flats, then made her way back to the table. Andrew stared at Nellie, eyes wide. His eyes ran from her red knuckles to her swollen cheeks to the dirt on her shoes, his gaze lingered over her pointed kneecaps. He knew. He didn't voice his thoughts, not outright. He didn't accuse her of anything. His expression told Nellie that he knew what she had done, and he wasn't happy. She waited for another remark about her elbows or the lanugo on her cheeks. Instead, Andrew looked defeated. No, you don't look good. Good? How would he know? Months or years had passed since he'd last seen Nellie. He didn't know Nellie's good. Not anymore. He couldn't hold her life up against memory, peeling away the days to fit his preference of her. He tried again. You look. How do I look? Her voice came out sharper than intended. Andrew shrugged. 
His eyes grew pink. Andy, Nellie sat down, took his hand. Take a breath. It was the accident, that's all. Car accidents don't do this. He rubbed her good arm with his fat fingers, grazing his thumb over her arching wrist bones. You're sick, aren't you? Andy. What? Are you dying, Nell? Your hands feel like ice. You're so... small. Nellie squeezed his hand, then let go, pulling her cardigan tighter around her. She didn't feel what he felt. No surge of emotion, no shared species of sadness. If anything, she felt embarrassed. Embarrassed that she had been caught. Embarrassed that Andrew broadcasted their family drama to the entire restaurant. But she didn't feel his grief. She didn't mourn her life. Not the years she lost to her illness and the years she continued to shave off. All that nutrition came up into the water before it could turn her back on like a rechargeable battery. Starvation into numbness. Edges into curves. Nothing. Egg whites. Nothing. For a moment, she felt poorly for Andrew. Malnutrition let her check out. People like Andrew were forced to remember everything on her behalf. So, she said the only thing that she could say to absolve her of a bit of guilt. Cancer. It's cancer. Andrew's face went slack. No. My God, what kind of cancer? Breast. Nellie was surprised by how easily the lie slipped out. Easier than dinner. Where are you getting treatment? Andrew asked. I'm not. What do you mean? It's too far along, spreading, stage four, too late. No, this doesn't... Why didn't Mom call me? Mom would have called me. Mom doesn't know. That lie couldn't hold water for long, but neither could Nellie. Well, then we'll tell her. We'll tell her and... Andy, I need this to stay between us. That doesn't make sense. Andrew's voice ran steady, but his eyes were glassy. This doesn't make sense. I could call someone, my workmate. His brother's a doctor, an oncologist, and I could... It's too late. Nully! It's too late, she said. Drop it. Andrew stared at her for another long moment, each puzzle piece clicking into place in his mind. Then he hung his head and cried. Nellie took his hand, feeling his sobs shake through him in waves. To her own surprise, Nellie felt nothing but relief. Cancer? Why hadn't she thought of that sooner? Cancer would explain away the weight loss, the brittle hair, the graying skin. It would explain the vomiting, too. Oh, wow. Perfect. Cancer! A perfectly reasonable thing to die over. If she told Andrew the truth, then he would try to get her into another hospital, another rehab. She would become a regular resident, dying in some inpatient bed with the whistling in her ears at full blast like a train tunnel. That was no good. Cancer was good. Cancer, not a problem to be solved. Andrew paid the bill and walked Nellie home in silence. He asked to come in for a drink, but Nellie assured him that she was too tired for further company. The cancer and all. He promised to call her in the morning to talk about next steps. Nellie nodded. He went in for a kiss on Nellie's cheek, then withdrew, a bitter expression crossing his face. Nellie smacked her lips. Her exhale tasted sour. 
gum, five calories, toothpaste, two. She watched Andrew slink off to his car. By the time he pulled away, Nellie had already begun to forget the evening, segment by segment, frame by frame. The last thing she remembered, in true color vision, was the red pepper in the toilet bowl. But she did remember how the night made her feel, like she was the only person left in the world. After a half hour, she put on her running shoes and went for a nighttime jog to clear her head. Nellie loved night runs. Hunger didn't let her sleep, yet the evening felt bloated with possibility. The night seemed to have as many hours as anyone could need. She could burn off a whole day slipping through the dark. A few weeks back, she joined a nighttime running group, but the trainer told her she needed to put on some weight. What was the point of that? No, she preferred to run alone, quick and pale, a skeleton trying to find their way back to their skin. As she stole through her garage, she noticed that the space felt large, suspiciously empty. She stared into the corner, searching for a shadow of something that didn't exist. She held up her cast, bending her arm at the elbow. The hanging light hit her wrist, projecting an L-shaped shadow against the far wall. She smiled. That was it. There was finally room for a treadmill. The next morning, after her weigh-in, Nellie got a call. The number didn't belong to Andrew. She ignored those calls as they rolled through all night. But an unknown number, one with a plus one rounding off the beginning. She answered. Hi there, is this Nellie Taylor speaking? Yes, speaking. Mrs. Taylor, this is Dr. Jenna DeRate from Memorial Hermann Hospital. I wanted to go over the results of a few tests we ran on Monday. Is now a good time? Tests? They ran tests? Her arm remained in a cast, but she didn't remember any tests. She didn't like their plurality. Now's fine. Great. I should start. The doctor trailed off. A few pages crinkled. Mrs. Taylor, your electrolyte levels are severely low. You're at risk of having a grand mal seizure. A grandma seizure? Grand mal. Have you had a seizure before? Nellie had a seizure the prior week in the shower. She knew that was a seizure and not a fainting spell because her vision became pixelated, dotted with red and green blotches before she lost consciousness. She flailed into the curtain and tore the shower rod off the wall. Minutes later, she heard knocking. She wrapped her body in a cheap towel and shuffled to the door, trying to keep her legs from shaking out from under her. She told her floor-below landlord that she slipped and hit her head. And no, she was fine. She didn't need to go to the hospital. No, I haven't. Okay, well, you're at considerable risk. And the reason your arm fractured so easily is because you have osteoporosis. Your bone density is at negative 3.7 in your arm, negative 3.4 in your spine. The doctor paused, waited for a question that didn't come. They should be around negative one. Is that all? Nellie asked. No, Mrs. Taylor, you're anemic. Your iron is low, potassium too, non-survivable levels. This can induce organ failure, or worse. And you have cirrhosis of the liver, not infrequent with alcoholism or chronic vomiting. Or worse. Nellie's legs began to shake. She leaned over her counter and stared at her yellow nails. The liver. That explained the nails. The potassium explained the horrible cramping in her hands. She glanced at the fridge, and her mind mused possibilities for lunch. 
a few ounces of the egg puree in the fridge, a slice of freezer chicken. She supposed it didn't matter. Do you vomit often? Hmm. No use beating around the bush. The doctor didn't ask her if she drank, so she knew the answer. Nellie's mind moved on to dinner. She got woozy thinking that far ahead, but if she didn't, she might risk a binge, and that was no good. If she only had a small salad and a couple ounces of yogurt, she could keep the day under 300 calories. If she... Do you understand what I'm saying to you, Miss Taylor? Nellie had been downgraded from a missus to a miss. She aged in reverse, reverting to an infantile state. I'm dying, Nellie replied. This wasn't a question. It hadn't been a question the night before when Andrew said it either. But now it came from a doctor with a capital D, as close to God as you could get. Her hand shook violently, her cast rattling like a tuning fork against the countertop. Not necessarily, the doctor said. If we can figure out what's causing this... Nellie had already stopped listening. She turned off the speaker and set down her phone. The droning of Dr. What's-Her-Name became a churning wave in the background. Nellie sank onto the floor, then wept. Dying. How wonderful. The relief of the cancer scheme didn't compare. Oh, wow. No more driving. No more work. No more dinners with Andrew. No more dinners at all. No more exhaustion. She would die, and they would wrap her up in a person-sized cast, like a moth in a web, and place her mummified body into a nice paper package and send it one way right to Andrew's doorstep. And on the box's note, Nellie would write a note. It would say, it was the cancer, of course. Feed my fish. Don't let them get bloated. She waited for the doctor's churning to grow slower and the dial tone to play. Once the white noise faded, she wiped away her tears, six burnt calories, and decided to walk, or run, down the block to buy a bottle of wine to celebrate. She wouldn't drink at all, lots of sugar, but she would enjoy a glass or two before pouring the rest down the drain. Nellie tended to enjoy the grocery store. She observed strangers as they filled their carts with cookies, snack bars, soda. Each week, she got her typical items, egg whites, Splenda, sugar-free tea, and gelatin. She felt assured of a self-control that no one else in the store possessed. She would die before she would digest. She would perish with every edge smoothed, every corner sanded, all of the fat shaved off. Nellie raced down the block, still in her pajamas, then stood outside of Kroger, a slogan written on the door, Fresh for people who eat. That includes you. She read the words again. That includes you. The shaking in her hands started back up. She walked through the vacant checkout lanes, passed between the frozen goods and dairy products. As she moved through the sections, her feet developed a new heaviness, cementing her heels to the confetti tile. That includes you. She stopped in front of the yogurt. She stared at the tiny bins, at their shimmering red tops, their dome-like bodies, parables of edible architecture. They whistled, cat-called her starved mind. That includes you. Her brain went blank, her eyes dark. She could feel her hands 
full of cold stones. She heard the sound of items, swiped through the checkout, beating like a heart monitor. By the time she regained her senses, she sat on her kitchen floor, surrounded by ten or so empty containers. Yogurt, for starters, but also a bin of Oreos, a loaf of bread, several empty cake tins, and a rotisserie chicken, white clear out of the plastic casing. Only bones remained. She raced to the bathroom. Nothing came up. Her gut, fast at work, obliterating her mistake. The proof like a cold sore, would not appear until days later, expanding her rubbery stomach out like a wart. The image made her nauseous. She pitched forward. No luck. She ran from her hallway to her living room, then back again, then back again. Her knees screamed with pain. She could live with pain, but without two good hands to propel her back in the other direction, she couldn't keep her momentum. She turned again, swinging her cast and... The sound of shattering glass caused her to freeze. An electric pain ran from her bum wrist to her neck, then back down again. She spun towards the counter, trying to locate the source of the noise. Her eyes found their way to the tile. A glimmering stream of water raced from her wooden shelving to the border of the refrigerator. A second flood of Moses trying to sweep the fridge away. Then a sliver of orange. Nellie's heartbeat filled her ears. She collapsed and grasped for the creature, yet its slick body wriggled through her thin fingers like jello. The orange slice thrashed and curled, then, with a final shiver, fell limp against the tile. No motion. She stared at the flaccid body, wondering if she should add that to the list of fish-related deaths on Wikipedia. Death by nothing egg whites, nothing. Yes, her only friend, a corpse on her kitchen floor. A guttural sound escaped her. Then, the sound of silverware touching an empty plate. The sound of Andrew's ringing, of the doctor's churning, of the fishbowl shattering. All at once, the cry came out alien in tone, her voice not quite her own. She stared at the goldfish, and an envy stole through her, turning her limbs electric. The fish was done, done with the flakes, through with motion, for always. And Nellie went on and on and on. Every edge that Nellie had smoothed with starvation was now scattered across the tile in a dozen jagged pieces. Nellie rose to her feet, retrieved her phone, trudged back to the kitchen. Her hand shook as she opened Andrew's contact and dialed his number. She put the phone on speaker, waited. A click sounded, then a low static came through the speaker. Silence. She savored Andrew's quiet. She wanted to live in that quiet, in the moment before, before the truth would become a necessary salve for the prior night's lies, those that would burst apart from her continued survival. Nully? Nellie held to her silence, unsure of what she deserved to say. She stared at the glass, at her arm, the good one still ill, filled by porous bone. Andrew was wrong. Broken did not equate to fractured. Nowhere near it. Nellie, are you there? Why did she call him? What could she say?
She stifled a cry, muted her speaker, and slid to the ground. Glass freckled the ground beneath her pajama pants, piercing into her skinny thighs. Nellie closed her eyes, imagined her own body thrashing on the floor, slippery and thin, her identity boiling down to a red stain, to a few stretched feet of flesh. At last, Nellie vomited on the tile. The yogurt escaped her body in runny sheets. The cake returned to earth in warm lumps, the Oreos in a strange rain of sugar. Nothing left. Nothing. 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 Relief stole through her like a breaking fever. She laughed. Laughed to herself alone, because her ears remained thin and her body still imploding, a hot wire being torn apart. No more trips to the store. No more trips to dinner. No more. Nearly done. Andrew's tinny voice came over the speaker. Nellie, are you okay? Nell? A bullet between the eyes, she thought. She unmuted herself. Fine, Andy, I'm fine. Didn't mean to call. Before he could argue or start into a question or a demand, she hung up. She sunk her hands into the floor, stared at her fish, at the strange spur of their lifeless body. Then she rose to her feet, grabbed her running shoes, and made for the door. You've just listened to Nothing, Egg White's Nothing by Piper Gourley. Welcome to the post-story portion of the podcast. I'm your co-host, Melissa, here with the multi-talented JW. Oh, hey, <laughs> the multi-talented <laughs> threw me off. Wow. <laughs> Um, welcome. <laughs> We've got Piper on the show today, so we can not only delve into behind the scenes of the story, but also learn a little bit more about the person behind this suck you in piece. Welcome, Piper. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a privilege to have you on the show. Yep, happy for you to be here. Piper is a professional ghostwriter from Houston, Texas, having published approximately 700 creative articles across the web. Her personal work can be found in multiple publications as well. So let's find out more. Who is Piper Gourley? Well, um, I'm 21 years old. I'm from San Antonio, Texas, but I spent the last four years in Houston uh, getting my undergrad degree in creative writing from the University of Houston. Uh, which was a lot of fun. Houston's a great city, um, and I miss it a little bit. Um, but yeah, I've been writing since I was eight or nine, but I really started to take it seriously my senior year of high school. Um, I had a really wonderful instructor, Tori Poole, who told me, you know, you're going to be writing forever and you can't do anything about it. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, you know, and I fought and kicked and I was like, I'm going to do another job. I'll write on the side. And, you know, and, and she was like, no, you're going to change your major. And sure <laughs> enough, I got to orientation and an hour later, I was in line to change my major to creative writing. <laughs> no um, way. Yeah. I mean, it was funny. She knew, she knew from the start. Um, and she's still one of my biggest supporters. Um, yeah, but I mean, the rest is history. I've been writing ever since then, um, short stories, novels, um, and working as a ghostwriter the last three years, which has been really fun, a really interesting job. I've, I've been really fortunate to be able to work as a writer since I was about 18, um, which a lot of people don't have the opportunity to do. So I'm really lucky in that regard. Um, it's, been a, it's been fun. Yeah, I write a lot. That's most of what I do. <laughs> well, well it shows, tell. yes. Mm -hmm, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> in this fabulous piece. Thank you so much. 
Great. Well, so you're a professional ghostwriter. Tell us about that. What does that mean and um, how, how does it work? Uh, well, it, it's kind of a funny story because I, I started writing uh, for ghostwriting when I was a freshman. I Googled online. I Googled jobs for writers um, because I was looking for a job and I was like, well, I mean, shot in the dark, but might as well. Um, and the first listing that popped up was actually the company I work for now. And, and they had posted the listing very recently. And I thought, you know what, what the heck, I'll apply. Um, and I had about three publications to my name at the time and they required three publications to apply. So I applied <laughs> and I was like, let's see, let's hope. And um, they got back to me within a couple weeks and were like, we'd love to have you join us. Um, and it's been really interesting. The, the company Presto Media has been fantastic. The editors are wonderful. Um, I get to work for a lot of really cool different clients. Um, ghostwriting, my name doesn't get attached to anything, um, which mm -hmm. is really interesting. Yeah. But it's been so fun. I mean, I've gotten to write about everything from David Bowie to curtain rods. I mean, you really get, you cover a wide range of things doing it. Um, but it's, I've learned so much. I mean, I really have. Um, I bet. And it's totally impacted how I've written stories because um, ghostwriting really teaches you that every single word matters and you have to be really intentional with every single sentence you put on the page. So I've, I mean, I've learned so much from the company and the editors as well. Um, it's been really wonderful. I've loved it. Yeah, terrific. Yeah. Are you off to a good start? Yeah, I really enjoy it. It's been great. Yes. And you've had pieces that you have been able to put your name on, like this mm -hmm. one, too, as well, that have been published. Does that tell us about that experience, too? Um, I mostly try to seek out things through Submittable. I had one professor a couple years back, um, Dr. Paul Stapleton, and he was like, submit stuff, submit wherever you can, you know. Um, once you're confident with the piece, once you've cycled it through and gotten it to a good place, don't just hold it. I mean, there are certain things that you can write just for yourself, but he was very adamant. He was like, you want to be submitting, get your work mm -hmm. out there, you know, because um, work doesn't die. I mean, you, you put it out and it continues to gain life and momentum as soon as you set it on a different stage. And he was like, you're going to get rejected a hundred thousand yeah. times, but someone's going to say yes someday and it's going to feel great. So just keep keep submitting. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. He was a great professor. <laughs> it gives yeah. me a, a wave of like, you know, a boost, you know, there's so much, mm -hmm. so much in writing that's negative, you know, you, you don't feel good about it because you do get all that negative feedback. Well, not negative feedback, but you get rejection. Yeah. And it's hard as a human being to accept rejection. So looking at it that way and just, I mean, your positivity already, it's just like, hey, it's part of the process, you know, <laughs> and you just have to get to that mindset. And I think you're yeah. really... Thank you. Yeah. I know that everything finds its right place eventually. You know, sometimes it's just not right for a certain publication or they've had other influx of peace or I, I worked for um, my my college's literary magazine, Glass Mountain, and we get these phenomenal pieces, but sometimes it was all about the curation of that magazine. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we have these six pieces that match our kind of theme that we're looking at, and then this one that's awesome, but just isn't going to be a right fit. Um, and so I know that rejection is just a part of it. It doesn't mean, it doesn't reflect the quality of your work. It's just, you know, go on to the next one. It'll find its home. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I love that attitude. It's not if, it's when, mm -hmm. and keeping that positivity about you. So I think that's excellent and a good thing for us all to remember. That theme, you know, always comes up in writing. Everybody, mm -hmm. you know, lots of authors talk about the rejection process, but it never gets old to hear about it because it's always a reminder. Somebody's going through that process. Somebody's submitting right now and they need to hear that. Or yeah. somebody's curious, you know, if they're a listener that maybe is not a writer, but writer, reader, what have you, I think it's interesting and 
and great to hear and, and keep that in mind. Yeah, one of our um, interviewees, Gavin Boyder, he had a spreadsheet where he tracked it all. And basically his theory was for every rejection you get, send out two more. That's awesome. <laughs> so yeah. I know, I just thought, wow, that's that's some serious uh, yeah. submissions. <laughs> that's, that's, you got to commit. <laughs> yeah, but it makes that's sense. Great. It's good. It's yeah. Really good. That's great. Well, one of the things we do like to do uh, is talk about the story. So can you tell us a bit about how you got inspired to write it and if there's a personal connection in any way? Yeah, I, I do have some kind of personal experience with the topic in the story. Um, and I have a lot of friends who have dealt with disordered eating and eating disorders, um, with treatment, things like that. Um, hmm. And I think that one thing that I was really noticing that was kind of lacking in the literature circle was stories about adults with eating disorders. There's a lot of mm -hmm. stories and novels that follow, you know, um, mostly young women. Um, I've read a couple great um, books and stories that follow young men, but it's been a lot of like young people. Um, and I, I mean, I know a lot of people who are 30, 40 years old who are, who are dealing with these things still, who are kind mm -hmm. of in that space. Um, and I, I wanted to write something that represented that, that showed, you know, sometimes you go through treatment and you don't get better. Sometimes you just continue to cycle and, and it's really difficult and painful. And I wanted to be able to articulate that experience um, and kind of provide another lens of viewing this topic. And so I got connected to Nellie and, um, and my characters kind of come to me fully formed in some ways already. They're already there with their stories. Um, yeah. The first time that a draft goes down, I don't even feel like I'm writing it. Um, it's really when I edit that I that I write the first draft for me. I'm like, whoa, I wrote that? Okay. Um, oh, wow, that's great. Yeah. Um, and so she came to me, strong personality. Um, and she actually showed up in two other stories before, before she like got her home in this story. Hmm. And so I kind of shuffled her around and she wasn't fitting in those stories quite right. And I could tell that those weren't the stories that she needed to be telling. And then we got to this one and it was like, okay, this is where you need to be because it just came out in a couple of hours, um, the first draft. So, nice. um, yeah. That's terrific. So does that mean you're a discovery writer or? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot plot. No, yeah. No outlining for me because I've, I've outlined two books before and about by chapter two, they're done with it. They say <laughs> I spit on it, won't do it. They won't follow anything I do. And, and the more I found that the more I fight my characters, the worse the writing comes out. It's very mm. forced and strained and um, I, I really have to honor and trust them. I mean, it really is a, a process of trust. Um, I yes. mean, they, they've communicated with me. They haven't led me wrong yet. Um, <laughs> so I just gotta, I gotta trust it. Um, Non-writers always think I'm crazy. I talk about it and they're like, all right. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it, they really feel like, you know, fully formed people to me. So I just kind of trust the process and then I edit and that's when I become the writer of the story. <laughs> so yes. that's yeah. a good, that's a good way to describe it. It is. Yeah, it's, it's like <laughs> the, the difference between reading a story and reading a slice of life. I really feel like your character was absolutely alive on the page Thank and it was, you. it felt like a slice of life. Thank you so much. And uh, I mean, a, a scary one, but I was there for it. Like I just, I wanted to keep going. I could not stop. I had to know what happened. <laughs> Thank you. That is fantastic. So you can tell, you can feel the realness of your characters just in this story. So it's like, I want to, just reading this story, I want to read more of what you've written. And so I think other people, when they read this, they're going to be like, where can I find more? Of <laughs> yeah. Thank Definitely. you so much. Thank you. <laughs> you will have to give us your social media yeah. Stuff if you'd like. Uh, yeah. yeah. The podcast or we'll put it on the website too. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely send that along. 
Great, great. You have several novels, you said. I know you're writing lots of different short stories and novels, but tell mm-hmm. us about some of your novels, because that's pretty interesting that you've written. Where where are they? What stage are they in? And um, I'm working on three novels right now. Um, I've, Simultaneously. It's, yeah, it's a little painful, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it's a lot <laughs> I know, to juggle. I, I can um, understand. Yeah, I mean, they're all fighting. I mean, it really is. The characters <laughs> show up, and I entertain them, or they go away. Um, there have been times <laughs> when... You know, I've gotten 30 or 50,000 words into a novel and they leave and I have to wait for them to come back kind of thing. I can't, I can't keep going. I it's, love that I'll, I've waited like two years before before they've returned and I can keep doing progress on them. Um, but right now, <laughs> a lot's going on up there. Um, I'm working on uh, one young adult novel that's about a group of girls at a kind of abusive boarding school facility in the middle of uh, the woods of Montana. It kind of tracks them trying to keep their sanity while some of them are kind of planning an escape. Um, and it's in the early stages. I did some kind of early drafting of it. Um, I have a few chapters down on the page. A lot of it right now is coming out as random lines that I'm adding to a big document that will eventually find their place in whatever chapter or whatever story gets told. Um, yeah. And I'm also working on a adult book um, about a young man in Texas who his whole job is that he goes town to town and looks for lost dogs. Um, and he collects the money when he gets the dogs and, and he comes across some really weird characters. Um, and it's, it's been a lot of fun to write. I've, I, since I live in Texas, I've kind of traveled to a few small towns to go and check them out and get the vibe mm-hmm. of the atmosphere. So I can really do it justice on paper and using Google Earth to go to the ones that are really far because Texas is massive. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And then I'm working on one last young adult book about a young man who, uh, he's 19 and he wakes up in the middle of the night and thinks he's God. Um, And it's told from the point of view of his two best friends and um, they both have been there through his whole life and multiple other breakdowns. And so it goes, it takes place across the course of this one night as they try to kind of unroot this delusion while also recounting the other breakdowns that led to this pivotal moment in his life. Um, it's really like watching a train wreck right now. I'm, I finally <laughs> finished the, the first draft. Oh, that's exciting. And now I'm going through to edit. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm happy that it's all out on paper. Um, yeah. It's been pretty chaotic. It's gone through a couple rounds of edits. Um, and now I'm doing some rewrites on, on certain chapters because um, I, letting my characters take the reins is great, but they're not great with plot. They like to talk about <laughs> themselves a lot. So I have to kind of go back in and put the plot in once they've vacated my head and won't yell at me about it. So, um, yeah, so it's a lot. It's juggling a lot, but I love it. I, I couldn't do anything else. Yeah, that's great. that's so great. Thank you. Yeah, well, they all and they all sound very interesting. I mean, all those plot lines, those uh, stories sound terrific. So I'd be Thank curious to so see much. where you go with them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope I can get something out there one day, a book. <laughs> Absolutely. No doubt. No I, I doubt. Have all confidence in you. Yeah. Thank agreed. you. Thank you so much. They all kind of follow the mental health, um, except mm-hmm. for the the perhaps lost maybe dog. mental health features into the, the lost dog one. But mm-hmm. Um, so that is that kind of your theme? Do you want that to? I know you enjoy writing about that, but is that what you kind of want to be known for? I know some authors, you know, they kind of have a theme, and would that be yours? Yeah, yeah. I really, I do focus kind of on mental health and the medical humanities. Um, those are really important for me. I found my way kind of into them a lot more in the last three years. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think mm-hmm. it's. I don't know. I really enjoy writing about kind of the spaces that people occupy in between moments of crisis and intervention. I feel Mm -hmm. like um, a lot of the things I read that surround mental health kind of show spirals or they show treatment and getting better. And I I wanted to 
use my work to explore that kind of purgatorial space in the middle where a lot of people just live. I mean, they go right. through treatment and then they're on the other side and they're not all better. Um, right. And so I really, even though Nellie is very much spiraling in this story, she's already been through rehab and she's, yes. you know, she's been doing this for years and she has a, a routine to it and a rhythm to it. Um, and even in her crisis, she's completely calm inside of the, the eye of the storm here that's about to kind yes. of take her down. Um, so it's really, I, I really have been drawn, um, especially in the last year, I, I have a really wonderful educator and mentor, um, Dr. Amanda Ellis, who has really introduced me to writing with the medical humanities and the ways that it can enact kind of social change and, and uh, bring about certain perceptions to, to topics that are under discussed or misrepresented in literature. And, and yeah. so working with like um, her knowledge and, and having been through several classes with her and um, having kind of had the honor of getting that, um, her, her readings that she's given me um, to, to look through has really pushed me into the medical humanities fully. And now I know kind of like, that's my course. That's the, that's the path yeah. I want to be going down. I like that. It's exciting when you can find where you want to be your niche. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I met, I have a medical background and so medicine and, mm -hmm. and all things, whether it's psychological or, or anything, I think it's an underrepresented, exactly what you said. It's an underrepresented topic because there's so many things to explore in that medical field. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's fascinating. Another thing when you were talking about with Nellie, uh, that space, that, that purgatorial space, I love the way you describe that. She went through treatment for, it was about three months, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. So that's a long time. And so it's really eye-opening for me as a reader to look at that and say, wow, you know, you think if somebody goes through treatment that they are all better, mm -hmm. they are ready to just be, be normal. But that's not the case. Yeah. You know, it, it's follow-up and, and sometimes that's lacking in our, in our medical field, that follow-up and everything. So I think yeah, it's, definitely. it's very eye-opening. So not only is it well-written, it's a topic that really makes you think. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I think you'll, you'll do well in that space because there are lots of people that live in that purgatory and they might seem normal, but they are not. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I think writing about that is, uh, is a good choice. Um, in this particular story, so are there, is there anything that you had as a, as a favorite part, either as you were writing it, when you went back to editing it? And I do have to say first that my favorite part was obviously <laughs> was at the end. So here I am thinking, mm -hmm. okay, here she is. She's about to reach out, but then no, you pull the rug out from under the reader and um, <laughs> yeah. that is not what happens. Yeah. So, and then, which is more true to life, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But do you have a favorite aspect of the story? Thank you. Um, it's funny you say that because that actually wasn't in the original draft. It, it went through peer reviews to get there. Originally, she killed the fish and then went on her run. Um, but I, I took it into um, peer reviews and one of my uh, friends, um, she, Kiana Richard, she's also a writer, she mm -hmm. looked at it and she was like, Piper, you keep writing these really sad stories and the fish always die. And I get it. I get it. <laughs> but I mean, she was like, you got to give us a little bit of hope. And her exact words were, you can drown us, but give us a lifeboat to look at. And I realized kind of that in those earlier drafts, I was turning Andrew into this antagonist when he really is just a lifeboat that Nellie won't reach for. Yeah. Um, so uh. I kind of had to add that portion in um, to make the, the weight of it really hit different. Mm -hmm. um, but I think personally, my favorite part of this story was really getting into kind of her altered state of mind um, mm -hmm. with with malnutrition. You know, there's lapses in time. There's difficulty yeah. remembering things. There's impulsivity. There's you can't really think a thought through to the end always. And, and I wanted to 
be able to represent that on the page in a way that felt organic to the audience and also held Nellie with kind of the care and tenderness that she deserves in this story. Um, yeah. And so I, I was really satisfied with, with kind of how it paid off in the end and producing those weird time jumps and those gaps and those moments of confusion and disorientation um, was really important to me to put into this piece rather than just um, focusing solely on kind of her concrete experience, but also bringing the audience into her head. So I hope that paid off. That was kind of my, my favorite thing to work on throughout the story. That's great. Well, well said. Thank and it you. definitely did pay off. Mm -hmm. I you. love, you know, there in a lot of stories you read about unreliable narrators. Mm -hmm. And so it's you, you don't know what to believe or not to believe. But with her, we are in her unreliability, you know, we're, we're there mm -hmm. with her. And it's a little bit different than the typical take of you're, you're not hiding anything from us. Mm -hmm. you're, we're seeing everything that she's seeing and nothing is being hidden. And it's, it's beautifully I keep saying, I, I just really like the story. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank so you. Saying that. It's well, it's well done. It's got a lot of different aspects that you can bring out to show somebody, Hey, this is what this looks like. And this is how it's done. Well, thank you. Yeah. Great. Well, and so in terms of writing, you've done a lot of different writing novels and short stories, plus your uh, ghostwriting bit. Do you have, is there anything in all of that that is particularly challenging? Short stories are hard for me. Um, I tend mm -hmm. to take even longer finishing a short story than I do a novel draft. Mm -hmm. um, most novel drafts take me like three to five months and most short stories take me like eight to 10 months because <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's strange because they're short form, but in novels, there's a lot more time to waste. I mean, you have yeah. more room to kind of meander and build mm -hmm. up and, and yeah. put details in that really don't matter very much. And in short stories, you can't do that. You know, every line has to say something and say it well. Yeah. Um, so you really have to be as aware of condensing it. And I still overwrite every short story I write every single time. And my, my <laughs> sweet, sweet poor professors have been gracious every time when they set a 15 page requirement and I turn in 23, you know, every time I'm like, I'm, I tried, I tried, I cut it down from 30 and they're like, okay. Um, but, um, so it's definitely, I struggle with kind of the short form and I, and I also, I love my characters and I love to spend as much time with them as I possibly can. Um, and when I'm working with novels, I get to spend that time with them and I learn more about them and their lives um, and their personalities and how they dress and how they talk and what soda they like kind of thing and it, it sounds weird but that that's really something I grow I get to grow close to them when I'm working in a novel and in short mm -hmm. stories I'm usually just seeing them in their worst moment it's usually what's happening and yeah, um, yeah. yeah so and I, I still love them but I I definitely I wish I could spend more time with those short story characters sometimes they're really only there for the short story and then they're done with me and I'm like all right I understand gotta move on yeah. <laughs> well, but you said that Nellie's been in other stories, so tell us about that. I have not yet written anything where I've brought people, characters, from one to another. Yeah, I, I really haven't either. Nellie's kind of the first. She kind of is the mm. anomaly here. <laughs> I, I was working with her in another story, and, and I've gotten, I, I struggle at times where I write a protagonist that reflects another character, and I don't fully realize the protagonist, and, and with Nellie, I, I had her in another story where I was doing that, and she wasn't getting kind of the, the recognition that she needed and the, of her internal struggle, because she was being reflected through um, her roommate at the rehab, and I, I finished hmm. that story, and I was happy with that story, but it wasn't satisfying, and it didn't give the effect that 
I knew I wanted and and the reason I I knew that because she was still kicking around in my brain and she was mad <laughs> and I was like all right um so I had to move her and I gave her her own page and and it kind of went from there I mean it started with the car accident um and from that moment on I didn't know anything that was going to happen so I just sat there for two hours and let her talk and then read back through and I was like okay here we go this is a lot but um <laughs> yeah she definitely took the space it, it definitely wasn't me like transplanting her to this story she was like nope I have things to say and she needed so... to tell her story that's great that's great <laughs> yeah I'm glad that she kept kicking because it all worked out <laughs> good stuff I love it I was gonna ask you know you talking about knowing your characters one of the things that comes up, a t a, an idea is if you really know your character, then you open their refrigerator and you'll be able to know <laughs> what's in their refrigerator. And that's how you can really tell if you if you know your your character. And so I was going to ask, you know, I was trying to think what would be a cool thing to ask? Like, what is in Nellie's refrigerator? But we all know nothing. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, <laughs> like maybe right. some, egg. nothing. some egg whites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much next to nothing. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like I connect with... Um, all of my characters in some small way across some small platform before I really recognize that we're on a good path with each other. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they have things that they're interested in that I know nothing about, like rugby. I was like, where did that come from? Another one of my characters. <laughs> I was like, I don't know anything about rugby. So I had to go and look up like rugby shoes and popular teams um, to, to write them well into the novel I was working on. Um, <laughs> but it's really small things. Um, some of my characters, I know what movies are on their shelves. Um, and other yeah. ones, I know what kind of shoes they like. I mean, it's it's interesting. And, and once I find those little connections, that's when I really feel like I know them. And even I, I feel even more like I know them when I can't answer all the questions about them. There are things that I don't get from them, like things I don't know about them, but that's when they feel most real to me because they're just yeah. like any other person where I also don't know, you know, about everyone's family relationships or, or things right. that are in their past. So it's really interesting. It's just all little things that, that I kind of learn about them. Um, and for Nellie, I think that the details I got from her initially was about her fish. She only cares about that fish. She doesn't care about anything else um, yeah. in that story at that time because um, she's so kind of detached from malnutrition um, yeah. and, it, and her brain is just drifting. But she, she loves this fish. So um, that was kind of the first thing that I got from her. And then the car accident happened and then I went from there. So yeah. hmm. it was interesting getting close to her. Do you ever, for your stories um, or your longer form works, do you ever write like a bio with, you know, that describes their physical characteristics and then all that stuff that you kind of know, or do you just always remember it? Because sometimes I will say on some of the longer form stuff that I work on, I won't remember. I have a lot of characters though. I don't always remember the eye color, you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I can usually see them pretty clearly in my head, but when I'm juggling really big works, that's when it becomes like the, the boarding school story I'm working on right now. There's about... 20 girls at this school Oof, and, and yeah. they're all named and they all you know have their own personality so I have a whole spreadsheet going that's like exactly what they look like just so even though I can see them in my head I want to make sure when I'm writing that I don't really mix anything up um, sure. or, or move things around and it makes it easier for me to kind of keep track um, but even those things sort of come to me as as paragraphs of of exposition of description mm. I never really write them as like this is her name and her hair is brown. It usually comes mm -hmm. out as like a paragraph um, yeah. that will eventually work its way into the novel. And then I'll just paste that paragraph elsewhere so that I can refer to it when I need to. Yeah, but I definitely yeah. have to do that in bigger works when there's a lot of characters. Um, but most of my characters 
or my stories really center two or three people at the most, just because I really like getting into individual heads. Um, yeah. Hmm. yeah, but sometimes yeah. more characters is not avoidable. Like you can't have a boarding school with two kids. So you gotta kind of, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, cool. Well, who is your first reader, the person that you take your first draft to? My dear, dear friend, Truth Thomas Alexander, another writer, best writer I know. Um, I love her work more than anything. Um, we actually exchange writing every Sunday. So we kind of keep each other accountable with writing um, like consistently. That's great. And I, I really, really trust her. Um, A, because I love her writing and I think she's phenomenal. And B, because I know she loves words as much as I do. Um, so I know that the feedback she gives me is coming from like the heart of a writer and someone who loves um, the process and who knows what went into each piece. Um, so even if we're just going to each other and are hyping each other up, you know, it, it, that's sometimes that's perfectly <laughs> what we need at that time. And she she gives great feedbacks. So I've been in several workshops with her, and that's kind of how we we connected and got closer. Um, and I trust her with my work more than anyone else I know. Oh, that's great! It's terrific yeah, to have that. Definitely, gotta have community. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, do you write um, for your longer works? Do you write chronologically? Since you're a discovery writer, do you ever? I mean, if you haven't finished it, do you write a chapter, or you you do you see something that happened earlier than where you are? Yeah, in the story? I really do. It's it's kind of strange. Sometimes I'll get um, a scene that's like in the like last chapter, like when I'm on chapter two, and I don't know how we got there though. Like I don't know anything about the middle, so right, I'm like, right. where is this from? Um, and so I kind of just write it out and then stick it in a document and hope that we circle back around to it. But then sometimes by the time we get right. to that point, they've changed their minds. So I'm like, okay, well, I, you <laughs> yeah, know, it is yeah. what it is. Um, but I definitely, I can't outline. And so um, sometimes I'll be writing and, and if, sometimes my characters will legitimately just get bored with whatever I'm working on at that moment. They're like, I want to talk about this. And so I'll just have to like go open up another document <laughs> and be working on that until they're kind of ready to go back to whatever that was. Um, so it's really just depends on the novel. There's been some novels that I've sat down and it's gone, you know, chapter one to the last one, like, you know, super fast, no, no interruptions because they just had so much to say so fast. And other times they kind of meander hmm. and, and bother themselves and get bored and take naps. And I, <laughs> I just have to jump around with whatever they want. Um, I feel like I'm kind of just channeling them at that point. And yeah, <laughs> right. so it's interesting. It definitely depends. Yeah, it's fun though. Fascinating, fascinating. Hmm. That's not a question we've asked enough people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Outside of writing, when you're not writing, what are you doing? Uh, longboarding usually. Um, I got even more into longboarding um, during the start of the pandemic because it was something I could do safely outside away from everybody else. So um, I went from like three longboards to like 13 in the course of a year. And so <laughs> I longboard quite a lot. Um, I go to the park a lot. Um, I love to be outside. It's really my favorite. Uh, I thrive outside. And so yeah, you can most often find me at the park with a coffee, longboarding from place to place. Um, so and for our uninitiated uh, listeners, which w I would be one of them, is, <laughs> is longboarding not surfing? It is something else. Yeah, longboarding was designed to stimulate surfing for uh, like places where there aren't so many waves or for, uh, but surf skating is something that I also do and something I really love. And, and the trucks are, are kind of looser and they're built on a spring system. So the boards are a lot more wobbly, but they can be used to practice surfing patterns or just um, longboards you kick and you can go long distances and surf skating you can not go very far but you can do a lot of fun stuff um, they're really fun to take into kind of streets and just go and go and go but yeah okay so longboarding is skating 
Yeah, essentially okay, so. Kidding. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I can't do the flips, but <laughs> I, can, I can skate from place to place. I can commute, um, and Got there's different it. kinds of longboards for different things. You can commute boards and trick boards, and um, but I mostly just go. I like to be on the move. <laughs> yeah, great. As That's soon cool. as we're done with this, I'm googling this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Check I need it out to on see YouTube. this longboard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. YouTube. YouTube. Yeah. YouTube surf skating. It's really neat. <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, so two more questions. The first one is uh, scheduling your writing. So it sounds like your writers come, I mean, your characters come to you when they want to come. So how does yeah. that fit with your um, writing schedule? Uh, I really, I, I still write every day, even when they don't show up. It's gotten to the point where it's kind of painful if I don't write. Uh, I feel kind yeah. of physically nauseous and sick if I <laughs> don't write for a day. Um, so that's, it. yeah, that's how I know I can't do anything else. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I really, I do write every day, even if it's just for a little bit of time. Um, I'm definitely a night owl, so I'll stay up late writing some days. Um, and sometimes that's when most stuff gets generated and when my characters are willing to kind of come out of the woodwork, hmm. depending on their kind of personalities too but yeah i i have to write otherwise i get kind of unwell <laughs> so. but you don't have a schedule that you do it on i don't have a schedule no i kind of just um i, I just go with the flow of how i'm feeling sometimes lines will pop up um mm -hmm. but if i get to the end of the day and i haven't written yet then i usually feel kind of bad and so i have to sit down and do a little bit of writing just to that release the great. pressure yeah <laughs> find some relief <laughs> Makes sense. The daily days. Now you, when you're ghostwriting, so you're writing all the time. Do you, does that, <laughs> is that like a completely separate process or do you feel like, oh, I've yeah. done so many other, everybody else is writing today. I can't do my own or does it make you want to do your own? Yeah, it's kind of, it's a totally kind of separate process. Usually um, if I have enough going on in my head in one day, I'll take a day off and just be working on creative pieces. Um, yeah. But ghostwriting is interesting because with each article that we claim, we have anywhere between 24 and 36 hours to get it done. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's fast paced, um, but it, it's great. And it's a great, it's honestly a great time once you get it down. Because um, yeah. most of them now I finish within a couple of hours. So it's really not a huge like crunch. But um, that's definitely more client-based. Like when we have articles that pop up and they're ready to be claimed, then I'll be like, okay, time to work on this today. Uh, but sometimes yeah. my other characters will interject and they'll be annoying and obnoxious and it'll take <laughs> a two-hour article into a six-hour article because I'll be going back and forth. Um, yeah, but it's definitely a more structured writing process than my own personal writing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. a different medium. It is, yeah. Well, um, lately anyway, our last question has been to writers, um, do you have any advice or tips or resources that you, you know, would like to offer and or is there anything that you wish you would have known that you, um, you know, learned along the way? Yeah, I think one of the most crucial things for me to learn and to recognize, um, I think for a long time I was really trying to be a great writer and I forgot to be good. Like I really forgot hmm. to hold the foundations of writing. I I was using a lot of like adjective stuffed prose and these lengthy <laughs> run on sentences and really trying to make, you know, be like, I'm a writer, I'm a writer. And and I forgot to honor kind of the story at the at the heart. Yeah. Um, and it was really my one professor, um, Dr. Stapleton, who sat down with me with one of my stories that was in rough shape. And he sat there with me for like two hours and he was like, this sentence needs to say one thing. 
get rid of all the adjectives. Um, <laughs> and I really learned then that there's, you know, there's power in the simplicity of it. I mean, it, it's really about the story. People want to hear a good story um, or they want to engage with a character that feels real. It's, it's, I had to learn how to write work that was not gratifying itself. And a really big part of that. that. Yeah, I, mm. it was just like I, I needed work that like um, was honoring its story and honoring yeah. the people at the heart of its story because I was trying to, to gratify myself as a writer and I was forgetting that the writing is the point. Um, and I right. think that a lot of it was just learning that every time that I overused adjectives or, or I tried to make it sound fancy or, or whatever, then I was exposing the writing as writing and it was ruining the stories yeah. that I was trying to tell. Mm. Um, because Very I was good. showing, I was like, hey, here's, you know, I'm a writer and, and it wasn't honoring the, the, the work. And so now I've gotten a lot more used to trying to be like a chameleon in the background to, to write work that has punchy sentences and, and is grounded in the concrete um, and really draws on the foundations from the start of the piece. Because um, it's, I, I think it's the difference between like writing that is good and can become great and writing that, you know, is, is just working for itself only. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, so it's been really crucial for me to learn that because uh, I used to be pretty bad about it. Um, but I've had some, you know, great educators along the way who who worked it out of me. <laughs> that's great. That, that's yeah. a really good point. I think in all fairness, yeah. though, pretty much every single writer has gone through that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean? so. yeah, it's a phase we all we all pass through. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's been so great to have you on the show you and so to much. read your work. We're so happy to have it in our yes. edition and excited to get it out there to the world. Thank you. So, it's been a privilege to be here. That's great. I can't wait to see what else you do and to follow you along your journey. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.